So a pastor decided to visit a fourth grade Sunday school class. And he asked the young disciples this question. He said, what does God say about marriage? Well, immediately one boy raised his hand and he replied, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I enjoy hearing what kids say about love and marriage. Check this out. Alan, who's 10, said, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. (laughs) So another guy, he's only seven, said, love will find you even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. (laughs) And then Lori, she's eight, was asked what her mom and dad have in common. She gave a very quick reply. Both don't want no more kids. (laughs) And finally, Gavin, he's eight, gave his insight into why married couples often hold hands. This is what he said. They want to make sure their rings don't fall off. Because they paid good money for them. Well, that leads to a question. If you're married, how do you make sure your rings don't fall off? Now, I recognize this is the second week in a row our topic has been marriage, and boy, that brings up all sorts of reactions. Uh, For some of you, it's very difficult because you're single. Maybe some of you are divorced and just the topic of marriage just brings up a whole bunch of stuff. And some of you are widowed and you're hurting and you're you're processing all of that grief. Now, I want to share what I said last week that it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you or somehow you're less than if you're not married. And we want to do a better job as a church, we don't want to put pressure on you to get married or make disparaging comments or tease you or just leave you out of things and forgive us for the times we've made you feel second class or unimportant. That's wrong, and we will stop because we need to do a better job of helping you live out your singleness with single-minded devotion to the glory of God. Last weekend, we learned how Adam broke out into poetry when he met Eve for the first time. And one of the action steps last week is I challenged us men to do the same. How many of you wrote poetry this week, guys? Yeah, me either. But I did receive an email from Marshall Jensen. Marshall and Janet are new members of Edgewood. This is a piece of poetry he wrote. He called it Marriage, God's Plan. Check this out. To the beautiful lady and her handsome man, God has given a master plan. To nurture and love each other will mean doing what's best for the other. A love which gives no sacrifice will in the end not suffice. What God has put together as one, no one must say it's done. Though God allows us to go through the fire, conformity to him is his desire. From scripture, I can confide faith, hope, and love in Christ abide. His word is one source of daily bread. It's most useful when daily read. 
If you will seek his kingdom and righteousness first, God will surely quench your thirst. Will the beautiful lady and her handsome man trust in the master's plan? Oh, that's good. Well, let's consider God's master plan for marriage. We're going to be in just two verses, the last two verses of Genesis chapter 2. You listen while I read, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here's what I hope we learn together, that because God designed marriage, we must do marriage his way. Would you observe the word therefore right at the beginning? It abruptly interrupts the flow of reading as you go through the chapter. It can be translated like this, for this reason or with respect to, because of, or even that is why. When we've been going through the first two chapters of Genesis, we've encountered doctrine, history, and theology. Now, doctrine turns to application. You see, this links us back to the previous passage where we learned how marriage is made in heaven, but it matures on earth. We saw how God's provision of partnership solved the problem in paradise. And so, as always, when we consider a text, we must look at the greater context. So let's just go back one verse. Adam, this is his poetry. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The word bone means of the same substance. Flesh refers to his body. So Eve was like Adam, and yet she was different because she was taken out of man. I appreciate the insight of my friend Brian LeBurge who helped me see this is not merely poetic, but it foreshadows and speaks of Calvary. When God opened Adam's flesh, there must have been blood. When Jesus was crucified and his side was pierced, blood flowed which paid the price for our sins. Now, notice, since Eve was taken out of man, then we see the word therefore, or for this cause, God called Adam to independence by leaving. He called him next to interdependence by cleaving. And then thirdly, to intimacy by weaving And finally, innocence by believing. I'm reminded of the couple who eagerly went to the courthouse one day to get their wedding, their marriage license. They made their way there. They eagerly approached the door. And when they got there, there was a sign on the door. This is what the sign said. Out to lunch, back at one o'clock. Think it over. (laughs) Well, that's very good advice. Well, let's spend some time thinking it over right now. Because here in this beautiful passage, we see four key elements of God's master plan for marriage. Number one, 
independence through leaving. So after expressing affection for Eve in verse 24, Adam is given his first responsibility. A man shall leave his father and his mother. Again, we see marriage is not man-made. It was part of God's plan from the beginning. That word shall means this is a matrimonial mandate. It's for all marriages in all cultures for all generations. By the way, this verse is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 5, and also quoted by the apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 31. The Hebrew word for leave It's quite strong. It's more than simple departure. It means to cut off. It means to separate, to forsake, and leave behind. Now, we're not to abandon our parents, but the emotional umbilical cord needs to be severed. See, your marriage created a new family from now on must take higher priority than your previous family. All other relationships must take a back seat. As a way to reinforce this truth, when I've officiated weddings, I've added some words to that part of the wedding when the father is walking down the aisle with his daughter. And I've been that father, and I can see the look on those dads' faces as they're coming down the aisle. And typically what happens after they come down the aisle, the pastor asks the question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Well, I've expanded that to include these words. So first, I look to the groom, and let's call him Sam. And I'll say to the groom, Sam, do you receive Sarah as a gift from God? Do you pledge to leave your father and mother and all others and to cleave unto Sarah as long as you both shall live? And he responds by saying, I do. And then I turn to the bride. I look right at the bride and I say, Sarah, do you accept Sam as God's man for your life? Do you pledge to leave your father and mother and all others and cleave unto Sam as long as you both shall live? And then I turn to the father. And I ask this question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And normally he says, her mother and I do. And then I add, in doing so, do both of you give full blessing to the marriage of your daughter to this man? They answer by saying, we do. And then let's call the father's name David. David, as Sarah's father, Do you hereby transfer your God-given responsibility for the care and protection of your daughter to this man? He normally gulps a little bit and says, I do. And then I turn to the groom, to the husband, Sam, The God-given responsibility for the care and protection of Sarah is hereby transferred to you. Do you accept this responsibility? And he answers by saying, I do. Listen, because God designed marriage, we must do marriage his way. Second mandate is interdependence through cleaving. 
So leaving one's parents shows marriage is to be the primary relationship. Cleaving shows that it is to be a permanent and exclusive partnership. That phrase, hold fast, is very descriptive. It means to cling to, to adhere to, to melt two separate entities together to form a permanent bond. It has the idea of joining two things so tightly that they cannot be separated without hurting both individual parts. This word was used of the joint where two pieces of armor were joined together. I wonder if it's behind that common phrase, you guys are joined at the hip. Now we could say it like this, in order to cleave, you must first leave. And once you cleave, you must not leave. Now, translators have used different English words to capture the depth of this Hebrew meaning. King James says, shall cleave. New Living Translation, joined. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, bonds with. The Lexham English Bible, shall cling Now, all of those translations are helpful because it's difficult to fully express the Hebrew in our language. Here's why. Because the word is a verb which conveys the action of attaching yourself to another as an expression of total unselfishness. It's volitional. It's not emotional. It speaks of the activity of staying close. Marriage requires maintenance oh we have an illustration in the scriptures where this is depicted clearly by the commitment ruth made to her mother-in-law naomi oh listen to verse 14 of ruth chapter 1 then they lifted up their voices and wept again and orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. All right, here's the backstory. There's two daughters-in-law, so one's name is Orpah and the other Ruth. Orpah decides to leave her mother-in-law, Naomi, who's also a widow. All three of them are widows. So Orpah is going to leave and they lift up their voices and they're weeping because she's taking off. But notice, Ruth clung to her. That's the word cleave. So her sister-in-law abandons Naomi. Ruth bonded with her. Oh, let me keep reading. And she said, This is Naomi. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return, so she's trying to tell Ruth to go. Return after your sister-in-law. Go with her. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Remember, she ends up in Bethlehem. 
and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. That's a huge statement. She's a Moabite. She's saying your people. She's saying I'm gonna, I, your people, the Israelites, they're going to be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. You know, this week I read about a wedding ceremony. I'd never heard of this before. It was a very unique ceremony. The bride and the groom put on welding gear and they actually welded two pieces of metal together during the service. And when I first saw that, I'm like, what are they doing? I looked a little more closely into it. And they're onto something because welding gets to the meaning of the word cleaving. And they were looking for a way to show, to demonstrate their covenant commitment to each other. And you can see, even though the guests were at a safe distance from the welding, they all wore welding goggles during the ceremony. I guess instead of a wedding ceremony, we could call this a welding ceremony. One person added, in welding, there are sparks first and bonding forever. Whereas in a wedding, there's bonding first and sparks forever. Actually, let's consider the word weld. Now, I don't know much about many things. So I decided to contact two Edgewood members who are welders. Between them, Rich Desper and Donnie Knight, Donnie's a new member here, between those two guys, they have 29 years of welding experience. Talked to both of them on the phone this week. I talked to Donnie twice this week. So here are some things I learned in my crash course. And if something isn't accurate, it's because I didn't understand it. It's not on them, it's on me. So here's the first thing I wrote down. Preparation of the joint is critical. The surface must be cleaned and even straightened out. So here's what I wrote down in application to marriage. Make sure you get some premarital counseling to get some things straightened out and cleaned up before you get married. Second thing I learned is when welding takes place between two pieces of metal, coalescence occurs. This is a process by which two or more droplets of metal form a single droplet to become one continuous solid. Someone last night told me, he's welded for many years, that even two dissimilar metals, when they melt, they melt and they make a brand new metal application. The goal is to become one. Next, they said that to fuse two pieces of metal together, there needs to be a lot of heat, a lot of pressure, so each piece can melt together. You know, heat hurts but it also refines us. Next, I learned when done properly, the weld is stronger than the two pieces of metal are separately. 
And the strongest point between the two pieces of metal is the weld. And to apply that to marriage, we need to focus on what we have in common. Next, I learned to have a proper weld between two metals. A third element must be introduced, often called the welding rod or wire, etc. But I did learn this. If the welding rod is too far away, the weld won't work. My mind went to Ecclesiastes 4.12, A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You need Jesus in your marriage. Next, I learned the correct environment is very important when welding. It made me think that if you're going to get married or if you want to have a marriage that honors God, it's very important that you put yourself in the right environment to grow to make sure you're in a place where you can gather with God's people so you can grow in your faith. Next, I learned that it's very important for a welder to have a solid foundation or a rest for the hands. Steadiness is critical for a secure welding path. If a welder does not have a good foundation or anchor, you can actually see it in the weld. The weld is weak and prone to failure. And so make sure to ground your marriage in the steady foundation found only in Jesus Christ. And finally, I learned that sometimes the joint afterwards needs to go through some grinding to clean things up. Marriage can be messy. For some of you, you'd say it's a grind. That sometimes God needs to do that, and it's worth it. Now, consider this, the acts of leaving, that's step one, and cleaving, those are covenantal words. Those words are used as part of covenants. Deuteronomy 4.4, but you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. One illustration I thought of were how, how does this look that we get to see Well, here at Edgewood, we get to see it through the act of baptism as Christians demonstrate their commitment to Christ by publicly acknowledging that Jesus Christ has saved them, that they have left the old life and they're now cleaved, committed to Jesus Christ through the new birth. We already have five people signed up for the next baptism service at the end of the month. And if you're born again and you've not yet been baptized, that's your next step. Friends, because God designed marriage, we need to do marriage his way. Thirdly, intimacy through weaving. To become one flesh is a lifetime process. And according to Ephesians 5.32, marriage is a great mystery. Think of this. Couples go for me and you to we and us. To become one flesh speaks of complete unity. The original Hebrew word goes beyond physical intimacy. It includes the whole of human existence, emotionally, intellectually, financially, spiritually, and physically. So while different and diverse, the two become one in purpose and mission. Someone has said marriage is when a man and woman become one. The trouble starts when you try to decide which one. (laughs) I picture a continuum. So over on this end, let's 
put oneness and over here, isolation. So right now, those of us who are married, you're somewhere between isolation and oneness. You're either moving toward being soulmates or you're just existing as roommates. Now here's the good news. Wherever you are on that continuum, you can take steps to move toward oneness. Remember this. The grass is always greener where you water it. The grass is always greener where you water it. And because God designed marriage, we must do marriage his way. There's a fourth part here. It's innocence through believing. Look at verse 25. It tells us Adam and Eve were totally innocent. They're exposed before each other, and the man and the wife, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is both literal and figurative. Everything's out in the open. There's nothing hidden. Well, because there's literally nothing to hide. One commentator captures it this way. They were at ease with one another without fear of betrayal or exploitation. Now, wouldn't it be great if the very next verse said, and they lived happily ever after? Uh, it doesn't say that. In fact, next week, we're going to see how everything changes in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered their relationship. And now, now their marriage is filled with guilt and grief, separation, and shame. Let's look ahead a little bit just to whet our appetite. Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. This foreshadows the shame of sin as heard in the words of Adam to God. Look at verse 10. God's asking Adam a question. He says, Adam, where are you? Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Because sin causes shame, we hide from God. We blame others, especially our spouse. And as we'll see in chapter three, we blame God as well. This makes me think of a quote from Vance Havner. Vance Havner is from another generation. He's now in glory. And he preached a lot about repentance and revival. Listen to his words that could have been written today. Quote, people used to blush when they were ashamed. Now, they are ashamed if they blush. Modesty has disappeared, and a brazen generation with no fear of God before its eyes mocks at sin. We are so fond of being called tolerant and broad-minded that we wink at sin when we ought to weep. When I've done premarital counseling in the past, I've avoided giving compatibility tests to engaged couples. I, I know a lot of pastors do that, and I know there's 
value in that. But here's my sense. Most couples are essentially incompatible. Why? Because of selfishness and sin. See, the biggest thing couples have in common is that they are both self-centered, selfish sinners. And so I submit the issue is not so much compatibility, it's forgivability. Forgivability. You'll have many opportunities to forgive in marriage, and if you're like me, maybe even more times you'll have to ask for forgiveness. Well, let's take this to the practical. Here's some ways we can put this into practice. Number one, don't let the sun go down on your anger. The night before our wedding rehearsal, the pastor took us down by a river and he had his Bible with him and he opened it up and I looked over and I could tell he was in the book of Ephesians. And I thought, oh, he's gonna read Ephesians chapter five, a classic passage on marriage. Well, he stopped in chapter four and I wasn't prepared for what he read. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. And he challenged us to make a vow to not ever go to bed angry. And we were both gonna say, oh yeah, absolutely. But before we could answer, he said, slow down. I'm asking you to make a vow. I'm not asking you to try. I'm not asking you when you feel like it. I'm asking you to make a vow as serious as the vow you're going to make during your ceremony at church. Well, after he scared us, we both meekly said, we make that vow. So here's the idea. The idea is to forgive your mate or stay up late. Now, if you make this commitment, you're going to be up late. Needless to say, we've had a few late nights. Secondly, don't get historical by bringing up past wrongs. I heard about one husband and wife who literally walked around the house. They both had ledger books. And whenever one made a mistake or sinned or did something wrong, they're like, gotcha, and would write it down. It wasn't until they threw those records of wrongdoing away that they were able to move toward intimacy. Oh, we love reading 1 Corinthians 13, right? Well, let's hone in on verse 5. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Thirdly, it's better to be reconciled than to be right. (laughs) Or as one book title puts it, you can be right or you can be married. (laughs) James 3.18 says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Next, make sure you live out your covenant vows. Marriage is not a contract. That concept of like a starter marriage makes me cringe. No, marriage, biblically understood, is an unconditional and exclusive covenant 
And staying married is not so much about staying in love. It's about keeping your covenant before a holy and watching God and with your spouse. In Old Testament times, there was a ceremony between two nomadic tribes to promise a son or daughter in marriage. Here's how it would work, and it's gross to our ears in our culture. So here's what would happen. The dads would butcher some animals. They'd cut the carcasses in half, and they'd put one on this side of the path and one on this side of the path, and the blood from the animals would go down onto the path. And then, at sundown, these two dads would walk through the blood path. This is what's referred to in the Bible as cutting a covenant. This was a solemn deal. And those slaughtered animals on the side as they're walking through the blood path symbolized what would happen to either party if they violated the conditions of the covenant. Do you know that there are nearly 300 references to the word covenant in the Bible? A covenant is an exclusive, solemn, and binding mutual agreement between two parties. In Ezekiel 16.8, God compares his commitment to his people to the covenant God, or to the covenant vow a man makes to a woman in marriage. So this is God speaking. I gave you my solemn oath. I entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Number five, it takes three to make marriage work. A young boy was asked what he learned in Sunday school from the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And after thinking for a moment, this was his answer. If you're having a wedding, make sure Jesus shows up. (laughs) Oh, that's good. You see, in God's marital math, one plus one plus one equals one. Your marriage won't last long if you don't have the help of Jesus Christ, if he's not at the center of your marriage. Paul Tripp writes, if God isn't at the center of your longings, your longings will never be satisfied. Get this, Adam and Eve didn't start having problems until they moved away from God. Oh, and in this discussion, let me just say this. Your spouse is not your savior. Only Jesus can be your savior. And among the surest predictors of whether a couple will stay married is how regularly they put Jesus Christ first and how often they gather with God's people for worship. Now, maybe you're thinking, oh, you're just saying that. You're a pastor. You're saying we need to go to church. Well, I was surprised this week. In my research, I came across an article from Newsweek published just two years ago with a very provocative title. Here's what the title was. Can our nation's churches save marriage and the family? 
And they were drawing from a new book called End Game, the church's strategic move to save faith and family in America. Here's what the columnist wrote. Faith and family life have hit record lows even as the science continues to mount, telling us how much they matter for the welfare of men, women, and children. Listen to this sentence. The decline in church attendance in America is inextricably linked to the decline of marriage. I read just a couple days ago, published in the Gospel Coalition, attendance in church has gone like this. Boom, it's plummeted. At the same time, deaths of despair are increasing. Friends, get this. God's objective for marriage is for a loving relationship of oneness. Jesus said it this way in Mark 10, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I like the King James better here. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. The word for joined means to be yoked together. (laughs) Marriage is meant to be a yoke, not a joke. (laughs) A yoke was used to maximize the work capacity of two animals. So work with me on this. Marriage is often described as getting hitched. Think of two animals yoked together and hitched to a heavy wagon. I learned that one Belgian draft horse can pull 8,000 pounds. However, if two horses are yoked together and trained to work together in a harness, well, you might think they can pull double that, And so they could go from one pulling 8,000. Well, now there's two. They can pull 16,000. Not true. Together, two trained Belgian horses can pull 32,000 pounds. Four times as much. Two together pulling in the same direction can pull four times as much as one. That's the power of synergy. You see, a good relationship has a good reward for its toil because when couples pull together, great things can happen. Oh, if you're married, be vigilant to guard your vows and determined to keep them even when your feelings fade and they will. Brothers and sisters, marriage matters to the majesty and it must matter to us. See your spouse as your companion, as one who completes you, as one you are to live in communion with and make sure you've done the leaving part, that you're cleaving to each other, that God is that you're allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work of weaving your lives together into one and keep believing in Christ because God designed marriage. We must do marriage his way. Well, I'd like to pray right now and if you're married, If it's not too uncomfortable, I'm going to ask you to hold hands so your rings don't fall off. (laughs) Oh, but 
if you're not married, I'm going to pray for you as well. So let's pray. Lord, I sense that there's a lot of hurt and pain and woundedness here. So Lord, I want to start by praying for married couples. Lord, would you engage and energize these couples so they never make the mistake of merely living for each other, but instead that they would see their marriage as a platform for ministry. Oh, may they seek first the kingdom that is yours and its righteousness so that all other things may be added unto them. May they not expect that perfection of each other that belongs alone to you. May they minimize each other's weaknesses. Oh, would they be swift to praise and magnify each other's strengths and see each other through a lover's kind and patient eyes. Give them a little something to forgive each day that they may grow in the grace of long-suffering and love. And may they be as forbearing with each other's omissions and commissions as you are with theirs. Make such assignments to them that will develop their character as they walk together. Give them enough tears to keep them tender, enough hurts to keep them humble, enough of failure to keep their hands clenched tightly in yours, and enough fruit to propel them in faithfulness. May they never take each other's love for granted so that when life is done and the sun is setting, may they be found, then as now, still hand in hand, thanking you for each other. May they serve you joyfully, faithfully together until at last, one shall lay the other in your arms. God, I pray now for those who are single. Lord, if it's your will for them to get married, would you help prepare them even now as they wait? Enable them to pursue purity and to live out your purposes. Lord, if it's not your will for some to be married, help them also to pursue purity and to find their purpose. May they know how much you love and cherish them. We pray also for those who are divorced. Would you bring healing to their hearts and would you minister grace to them? Help them not feel abandoned as you remind them of your love and your forgiveness. Lord, there are many here who have lost their spouses. Or would you comfort them in their grief? Help them to find their new purpose. When they feel lonely, please meet their needs by your spirit and through your people. And now to him who was able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Give us grace so we can reflect your glory. This we ask through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.